This week is Parshas Vayeshev, and I'm coming to you from Jerusalem, the holy city of Israel. I actually was planning last week when I gave the uh, talk, the podcast, to announce that I'm not going to give a Parsha podcast, a second Parsha podcast this week, because I'm going to be in Israel. And my wife told me that, no, I should record one in Israel. So if you like it, you have her to thank. And as always, the email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. Now, our Parsha begins with the saga of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is the uh, 11th son of Jacob. He is the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And he's also Jacob's favorite son. He loved him so much, he made him a special sweater that the brothers, the rest of the brothers were sort of envious of him uh, for. Uh, Jacob would study with him, we're told. And also, Joseph behaved in maybe a little bit of an immature way. We're told that he would love to play with his hair, make it really nice, and he would tattletale whenever his brothers did something objectionable. He would go over to daddy, go over to Jacob, and tell them, tell him what they did wrong. And also he was, or at least in the brothers' eyes, they looked at him uh, that he has these megalomaniacal dreams of dominance and lording over his siblings. He tells them, I had a dream that you were all bowing down to me. First, it was your stocks. Then it was uh, 11 stars and the sun of the moon, which is a reference to father and mother, and the 11 brothers. They're all bowing down to me. And he has the naivete to relay these dreams and these messages to his brothers, which just increases their enmity towards him and perhaps their envy as well. But certainly, they hated him. And there was this fateful time where Jacob instructs Joseph to go check up on his brothers, and then they have him isolated, and they make a decision to execute him, to kill him. And as he's approaching, they're talking to each other, and they say, look, here's the dreamer, the dreamer who thinks that he's going to control us. We're going to see what's going to happen with his dreams, because we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him, and we're going to throw him into one of the pits, and we'll give an excuse, he was taken, he was killed, we don't know what's going on, and that's that. Now, we have to understand before we begin, why would the brothers, we know these are very righteous people, why or what rationale do they have to come to this conclusion that Joseph is worthy, is deserving, is warranting of execution? And all the commentaries try to address this question. So, for example, one of the commentaries says that if you remember uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Rachel, actually last week, Rachel dies. And the sources tell us that the reason why Rachel died prematurely, she died very young, was because when Jacob and his family were fleeing from Laban, they, uh, Rachel had stolen Laban's idol and hidden it under her. And she had not informed Jacob about that. And Jacob, when Laban was frantically searching for his idol, Jacob said, nobody took it. Whoever took it is going to die. And the sources tell us, the Talmud tells us, that Jacob's words carried weight. And therefore, when he gave a curse and said, whoever took it is going to die, even though he didn't intend uh, uh, for that to be uh, something that would cause Rachel to die, because Jacob's words had such power... Therefore, whatever, he's, whatever he said became true, even if it was not his intention. And the brothers, they, they realized that Joseph, he's Jacob's favorite son. 
and he has Jacob's ear, and he's tattletaling and ratting us out and pointing at all our flaws, maybe Joseph is going to tattletale on us to daddy, to Jacob, and Jacob's going to decide to curse us, and then we're all going to die. So in a sense, Joseph is trying to kill us. And the halacha is that if someone's trying to kill you, you're entitled and even perhaps mandated to kill them first. And they're sitting there, and they see Joseph approaching, and they make a decision to kill him. And Ruvain intervenes. So verse 21, Ruvain hears, and he saves him, saves Joseph from his hand. And he says, Lo nakenu nefesh, we're not going to kill him. Instead, verse 22, Reuven tells his brothers, don't spill the blood. Instead, throw him into a pit, which is in the desert, but don't strike him with your hand. And the Torah testifies that the reason why Reuven made this decision, and this, he took the stand, was indeed to save Joseph and to return him to his father. Uh, so they strip Joseph of his clothing, and they throw him into the pit, and the pit was bereft of water, and the sources tell us it was bereft of water, but it had snakes in it, it had poisonous, venomous snakes in it. And in the end, they sell him to a caravan traveling to Egypt, and he ends up being a slave. And then when Reuben comes back, he finds the pit is empty, he rips his clothing. That's the story in this week's parsha. But the Orachim, one of the commentators on the Torah, he uses his, this whole episode to address, I think, a very critical matter of Jewish philosophy. Uh, specifically, he's talking about what was Reuven's, uh, Reuben, what, what was his calculation? He says, we're not going to kill him, we're going to save him. He intended to bring him back to his father, but instead he told him, he instructed them to throw them into a pit. So what, what's going on over here in his uh, in his argument. And also, the brothers previously, they had said that Joseph is worthy of being killed. And they were not ones that were easily swayed. So if they believe that Joseph should be executed, how is Reuven addressing with it, that, their claim, with his intervention? So on one hand, if Reuven's trying to save him, save him. Don't throw him into a pit. On the other hand, if the brothers believe that he's worthy of being executed, execute him, why are they throwing him into the pit? So what's going on over here? So the Arachayim, one of the commentators, a 17th century scholar, he address, addresses a very, I think a very central, uh, I guess, dilemma or conflict in Jewish philosophy. You know, we believe that the Almighty controls the world. You know, that's the basic of Jewish faith. God controls the world and everything in it. On one hand, on the other hand, we also believe in free will. A free will means that man, that humanity, also has a say in determining what happens to the world. Humans also, their actions and their choices matter. So, and, and those two things, those two realities, are at odds with each other. Because if God controls it, we don't control it. And if we control it, God does not control it. So thus, free will and God's dominion and dominance and oversight over the world are at odds with each other. And this question or this conflict, this dichotomy really is at the source of many, many questions 
For example, the famous question of free will versus determinism. You know, if God knows the future, how do we have free will? It's a very famous question and a very knotty, thorny one. But at its root, it is uh, just one aspect of the central conflict between what God controls and what we control. And if God controls the future, we don't. And if we control the future, God doesn't. And that's why it seems like there's no way to reconcile the fact that God has a say and we do. So, so the, so the, the Archaim tries to address this question. Where do the two points meet? Where does the fact that God controls the world, but we are created in his image, we're created in God's image, and we have a say as well, where do those, do those two points meet? To what degree do people, does humanity, does free will have a say in determining one, uh, determining what happens. So for example, so just to kind of give the context for the question, the Talmud in the very first page of the book of Tainus, the book of Tainus, Tainus means a fast day, and the whole book of the Talmud addresses the halachic details of when and how to, uh, to have a certain fast day, communal fast days. On the very first page, uh, the, the Mishnah is talking about, the Talmud is talking about when would, uh, if there's no rain in Israel and there's a drought, so the rabbis would convene and would enact a fast day. The whole nation fasts for one day and has a day of prayer and fasting in order to entreat God to give us rain. That's the context. But the Talmud says something very interesting. The Talmud says that there's three keys that are in God's hands and God's hands alone. There's three keys in the hands of the Almighty that were not given over in the hands of an emissary, of a proxy. What are those three things? The key of rain and the key of procreation. And finally, the third thing is the mafteach is the key of resurrection of the dead. What this Talmud is telling us is that in these three areas, in rain, in sustenance, in procreation, and in resurrection, they're entirely in God's hands. Now, that being said, even though they're entirely in God's, in God's hands, prayer can influence God. Right? We see, for example, in Genesis, where Isaac and Rebekah are praying to have a child. And they end up, end up having twins, of course, Jacob and Esau. What that means is that God has the key. Only the Almighty can determine, has the lever of deciding if a person has a child or not. That said, even though God controls it entirely, with prayer, we can influence and lobby God to give us rain and, and, and resurrection and procreation, etc., but that essentially is a demarcation point in our discussion. These things are not in the hands of man. There's nothing that we can do to force, to brute force someone to have a child or to brute force rain. Even today we could try, you know, with in vitro fertilization and the like, but a lot of times it doesn't even work, you know, because God sometimes decides some people are not going to have children, tragically, sadly, but that's, that's just the way it is and those calculations are, are his alone to make. That's, that's an example of the context of the question. But what about homicide? What about if one person, tragically, sadly, 
kills another person. Is that in the realm of free will? Is it the free will of the murderer to kill the victim? Or is that still governed by God? When we have a, someone who was, is, a, is a homicide victim, someone who died, was murdered, does that mean that God signed off on it and it's under the realm of God's control? Or does God say, this is an area where I'm extending free will to humans? And therefore, if a human with their own free will decides they don't like someone, they want to shoot them, then so be it, that's in the hands of the human, even though in God's eyes, by his standards, the person should live. The person's not guilty. That's the question. So the Arachayim says, fascinating, a human has free will, and that free will extends even to taking the life of someone else. When someone is shot and killed, tragically in a homicide, it does not necessarily mean that God wanted the dead person dead, that the dead person was worthy of dying. No, maybe in God's eyes, the person who was killed, the victim, should have lived for another 50 years. But free will is so powerful. The fact the Almighty gives us so much leeway in, in determining what happens to the world that the person should live, but he doesn't because of a choice of another human. Pretty astonishing idea. So that's with regards to homicide. However, what about if there is a person who is mauled to death by an animal? So if someone's mauled by a lion or any other animal, bear or whatever. So says the Arachayim, in that case, uh, someone dies uh, under those circumstances? That's a different story. That, if someone dies by the hands of an animal who does not have free will, that is obviously evidence that God wanted that person dead for whatever reason. And therefore he explains what's Ruvain's calculation and his argument to his brothers. The brothers are saying, Joseph is guilty of a capital crime and we should execute him. That's what they're arguing. What Ruvain is telling them is that maybe you're right, but maybe you're wrong. It's not so clear, it's not unimpeachable that Joseph is in the confines of a halachic pursuer. It's not clear that you ought to kill him. So how do you know? You don't know. You, you suspect that maybe he is a pursuer that you should execute, but you're not a million percent sure. And therefore, what's going to happen? You want to kill him. And you say, well, if, if we kill him and he dies, then obviously, ergo, that reveals that he was guilty. That's what perhaps you would surmise. But says Ruvain, no, God gives man the free will to kill other people if he so chooses. And even if that person is not guilty, if you, if you decide to kill him, if you spill the blood, you'll never know if Joseph was really guilty or not. If Joseph really was warranted to be executed. Because maybe he was innocent and he was not a halachic pursuer, but you killed him anyhow. And that's within the bounds of your free will. And therefore, what does, Joseph, what does Reuven tell him? Don't kill him, throw him into the pit. And we know the pit's full of snakes. What he's telling them is, if you kill him, we won't know if he's guilty or innocent. However, if you throw him into the pit and the animals kill him, 
then obviously he's guilty in God's eyes, and therefore he did the right thing by killing him. And thus, what is Joseph? Reuben is presenting a very logical argument to his brothers. We are not so sure that Joseph is guilty, and there's only one way to find out. Throw him in the pit. And therefore, even though the Torah tells us that Reuven's intention was to save him, he didn't actually do that uh, in, a, in a conventional way. He, he did it in this proxy way. And that was also a way to assuage the brothers. The brothers thought he was guilty, but they were willing to accede to Reuven's argument by saying, well, we'll throw him into the pit and let the animals decide, and that will be God's way of deciding and thus answers both of our questions. Why, if Reuven was trying to save him, just save him. And if brothers were trying to kill him, just kill him. They come up with this middle solution, throw him into the pit full of dangerous animals, and then if he's guilty, he'll be killed, and if he's not guilty, he'll survive. So this is just an important insight in Jewish philosophy, uh, which really shows to us, first of all, this is an important question to kind of ponder. Uh, It's not something we're used to pondering. But at what point does man's control end and does God's total oversight take over? Here, the Orachayim tells us that even with respect to taking someone else's life, that's still within the bounds of free will under most cases. And this is the next point that I want to talk about. There's a very important Mishnah in chapters of our fathers. I think it's in chapter 3, I believe. It says, If someone accepts upon himself the yoke of Torah, they remove from him the yoke of Malchus, of the kingdom, and the yoke of Derech Eretz. What does this mean? This means that the question of a yoke, a yoke is who has control of a person. And like, like, for example, if, you, if you, ha- you put a yoke on an animal, on an animal that's plowing the field, uh, just as an example, and now you control the animal. That's what a yoke means. And what this Mishnah is telling us is that there's three different kinds of yokes that we can have. We could have a yoke of Torah, we could have a yoke of the kingdom, and we could have a yoke of the way of the world, of Derech Heretz. What this means is, yoke of Torah means God is control of a person. The yoke of kingdom means the police power of the kingdom is in control, i.e. the free will of others. And the yoke of derech of the way of the world, that means the, the laws of nature. That the laws of nature mandate certain things. For example, the laws of, mandate, the laws of nature mandate that if someone goes in, is thrown into a fire, they die. And if someone doesn't work for a living, he doesn't plant, they'll starve. That's the laws of nature. By default, man is subject to two yokes. The yoke of kingdom, i.e. other people's free will, and the yoke of Derechertz, the way of the world, the rules of nature, the way the world operates. However, says the Mishnah, that is not fixed forever. If someone accepts upon themselves the yoke of Torah, if they accept God as the only control, as the only entity that has the reins to decide how they operate, if they fully submit themselves to the will of God, such a person actually removes the yoke of other people and the yoke of the laws of nature. So for example, the Talmud says that if someone studies Torah entirely and all the time, 
then their needs will be addressed by others. And the paradigm, the exemplar of that, is the great Rabbi Shiva Bar Yechai. He was someone who spent 13 years in a cave doing nothing but studying Torah, and his needs were miraculously met by God. God made a stream of water go by his cave and made a, a, a carob tree sprout by his cave, and he had plenty of food and drink for the duration of his stay. He accepted upon himself the yoke of Torah, and therefore the yoke of Derech the yoke of the way of the world, i.e., you need to work to feed yourself, well, that was removed. And God said, I'll feed you. That's one example. The other example is uh, Abraham. We know that Abraham was, when he was young, he was thrown into a fire when he refused to repudiate monotheism. And he survived without a single hair on his head being singed. And this is actually an example of both the yoke of heaven and the yoke of kingdom not, I'm sorry, both the yoke of kingdom and the yoke of the rules of the world not having any control and dominion over him. Why? Normally, if someone's in fire, they burn and they die. That's the laws of nature. Abraham is not controlled by the laws of nature. He has control over nature, not nature having control over him. In addition, Abraham was thrown into the fire by a perpetrator, by another person's free will. Normally, someone is subject to the free will of others, but because he accepted upon himself the yoke of Torah, the yoke of God, he removed another person. Couldn't, he was impervious to uh, to the attacks of other people. Only God decided what happened to him. And I think that's uh, another wrinkle in our discussion. Yes, of course, uh, we are very powerful in the fact that we have ability to really determine what happens to ourselves, to the world, and, and to other people. You know, we have a degree of kingdom, of dominion and dominance that we could control other people. And if you think about that, that essentially means that we, we're partners with God in determining how the world is run. The world is going to operate. The question is how? Well, who determines that? Who determines that? God and humans who are created in the image of God who have free will to decide what happens. We have a say in the matter too. And if you think about that, that really gives us incredible responsibility. The Almighty trusts us to dutifully and, and, and morally and righteously influence the world and direct the world in a way that is proper. Just think about what that means. You know, that's what we talk about. That We have responsibility to fix the world. Tikkun olam. We talk about tikkun olam all the time. What does it mean tikkun olam? Fix the world. How can I fix the world? It's God's world. No. It's not God's world. It's God's world, but it's also our world. And God gave us an imperfect world, and our, obje our objective is to fix it because we can and because we must. We were given the tools. We were given the free will to perfect and fix ourselves, the small world, and perfect and fix the world around us, the big world. That's number one. But in addition, we see the power of Torah. The power of Torah is that it really, it, it upgrades man's status as on the receiving end, so to speak. Normally, man is controlled by free will of others and by the laws of nature. 
through Torah and to the degree that someone connects to Torah and subjects themselves to God and submits themselves to God, accepts upon their shoulders the yoke of Torah, the more, to the degree that someone accepts upon themselves the yoke of Torah, the yoke of responsibilities, of abiding by the laws of nature, and the, being subject to the, to the dominion, to the free will, to the brute force of others, is removed. Just as a follow-up, the question may be asked, well, if so, how come Joseph, how come his, the fact that he accepted upon himself the, the yoke of Torah, how come that didn't save them from the free will of others? Well, the answer is because their free will is also powered by the fact of their own righteousness. So the brothers, they have their free will which is empowered, and therefore even though Joseph's free will is also empowered, but they would be able to uh, dominate uh, over them. And therefore, Ruvain says, don't kill him, throw him into the pit. This is not an easy idea. And if, like we said, this is only one area where it's manifest. There's a whole Talmudic discussion about should people go to doctors or should they just trust God? Again, the same conflict, free will, how much of a say do humans have and how much are we subjecting ourselves to God? But the, the bottom line is, is that really... It depends, and that's why it's a complicated question to answer. To the degree that someone accepts upon themselves the yoke of God, to the degree that they upgrade the way they view God, God upgrades the way he views us. But generally speaking, we do live in a world where we're controlled by nature, we're controlled by other people, and to do that, to change the status quo, we have to embrace Torah, very powerful, an informative and instructive teaching from this week's Parsha. Uh, again, regards from Jerusalem, and I look forward to seeing you and to speaking to you next week. Thank you.